you're going to see in this, in this uh, text, uh, there's nothing minor about Nahum's message. Uh, matter of fact, it's very major. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, the Bibles that are in the pews, you can feel free to take one of those as a gift from us to you. Uh, we would want nothing more than for you to be able to read God's Word regularly on your own, in your own faith. Uh, with that being said, I'm going to start our time with a word of prayer. Pray with me. Lord God, as we approach your word this morning, we give you thanks for it. You've not left us on our own to figure out who you are or what you are like, uh, but you've given us your word so that we may know you and therefore love you. We pray that that would be the result of our time together this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Perseverance is a gift that we should never take for granted. Every day that we wake up still trusting in Jesus, uh, repenting of our sin, is truly a gift of grace from the Lord. Every day that we are saying no to sin and clinging to Christ in faith is a reason to rejoice. Uh, but sadly, I'm sure we all know of individuals who at one point were following Jesus but have not persevered in the faith have abandoned the faith, those who no longer walk with Jesus, either explicitly uh, hostile towards the things of Christ or maybe a little bit implicitly in that they just simply do not walk with God and show love to Jesus. Uh, 1 John 2, 19 speaks to those who do not persevere in the faith. John says, they went out from us, uh, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Not only is perseverance a gift, but perseverance is necessary. The scripture both encourages us and warns us to continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Why? Well, it's because it's only those who endure to the end by faith that will see God. God cares about our perseverance. Which brings us to the book of Nahum, which essentially is written because an entire people group did not persevere in keeping with repentance, the Ninevites. Uh, you might remember Pastor Dave mentioning Nineveh when he was preaching through Genesis 10. Nineveh was established by Nimrod, uh, who came from the line of Kish, who was the son of Ham, whose lineage was cursed by Noah. In step with being a cursed lineage, Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, was known for being an extremely violent and destructive people. They were absolutely brutal in their conquest. They would hang the bodies of their victims on poles. They put the skins of their victims on their tents among many other atrocities. And because of their brutality, they became known as one of the world's first great empires, uh, entirely conquering the northern kingdom of Israel and putting all kinds of pressure on the southern kingdom of Judah to face these same problems. So what's probably most familiar to us, though, is that Nineveh was the city that God used the prophet Noah in. Uh, Noah was to preach a message of a coming judgment if the city did not repent. And as the story goes, Noah, in his foolishness, attempted to run from God. Uh, he got on a boat, then he was eventually thrown overboard, then he was eventually swallowed by a fish, and then he eventually landed in Nineveh, England. Uh, some commentators speculate, and I would probably agree, that Jonah's reluctance to go preach this message to the Ninevites is because of how wicked they were, right? Jonah didn't want them to be saved. 
but this year next, God spares many Nineveh's repentance. The nation of Nineveh, known for its wickedness, many ways, Nahum is the sequel to Jonah, by part two, if you will. 150 years after Jonah preaches, Nineveh repents. Uh, They're back to their old ways of idolatry, violence, and arrogance. God had been patient with them. But as we'll see today in Nahum chapter one, without patience, what do we think about the Ninevites? So with that context in mind, our passage for this morning, Nahum chapter one. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the visions of Nahum the architect. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means fear the wisdom. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Of Bashan and Carmel river, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by his hand. The Lord is good. A stronghold knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversary and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you cry against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, full of grass. From you, you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you. He will break your bonds from off you. The Lord has given no more. No more shall your name be protected again. From the house of your God, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave and you are fallen. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless act fail. He is ever just. Nahum has one message. Nineveh shall fall. The book of Nahum, uh, written to the southern kingdom of Judah, consists entirely of oracles of judgment. Oracles simply being the word of God. However, the book itself is prophetic poetry. As we'll see in chapter 1, there is extensive imagery and vivid detail conveying the sense of being an an eyewitness to Nineveh's destruction. Uh, Nahum was telling the people of Judah, do not despair, because God has pronounced judgment on them, and the Assyrians would soon be doing the very same. But how soon? Well, Nahum chronologically stands in the gap 
ask this a few years because I'm not sure those who were in this yet. Because I think uh, Jesus taught, uh, excuse me, Jonah taught this. And before the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians and inherited Israel as uh, the nation for the judgment of the land to be brought here. But all that these three chapters consist of doesn't come to fruition. Check this out. For another 100 years after this is written. Uh, this would be the equivalent of somebody today uh, predicting 100 years from now the fall of a planet super high in the air. The, the southern kingdom of Judah is receiving a prophecy of the coming destruction of their worst enemy, but not now, for another 100 what, what comfort is there to be found in that? ABC family, could we not ask the same question? How does our future hope that God will one day make an end to our worst enemy, sin, affect how we live today? Well, we'll see in Nahum this morning that God's vengeance is complete for his enemies and therefore a comfort for his Look at my notes right now. That was my main idea. God's vengeance is complete for his enemies and therefore a comfort for his people. So from that main idea come our two points for today's sermon. Our two points, the first half of our sentence, God's vengeance is complete for his enemies. We see this in verses 2 to 6, verses 8 to 11, and verses 14. And then point 3, God's vengeance is a comfort for his people. We see this in verses 7 12 to 13, and 15. And as we approach this text, we're going to be asking three questions of both of these stories. These are our three questions. Who is God? What has he done? And who is his people? We're going to ask those three questions of those two points. Who is God? What has he done? And who is his boy? Now, we have to remember that we're dealing with poetry here in Nahum. And just like any poetry, ideas, and themes will get repeated, and they will overlap. So as we get into the text, we'll see these points as we jump around throughout the Bible. So verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Ezra. A word from God uh, about Nineveh is given as a book uh, via the vision of Nahum of Ezra. Historically, we don't know much about Nahum or Ezra, where he's from. Some speculate that Nahum may have been from Judah, meaning this prophecy would have been for his very own people. Uh, regardless, after this quick introduction, Nahum just dives right into the main theme, the main idea of the book, God's vengeance. Right, so point one, God's vengeance is complete for his enemies. Vengeance. A punishment inflicted or retribution exacted for an injury or wrong. Uh, a legally deserved punishment. It could be very concise. Vengeance at its core, is a response to wrongdoing, a response to wrongdoing. A law has been broken, the innocent have been oppressed, and as a response, those in charge must act to right whatever was wrong. A good judge is meant to deliver a just punishment for a law broken. Why? It's to protect the innocent. This, in part, is why we as Christians, when referring to our salvation, talk about our debts having been paid. Because we have broken God's law, we know ourselves to be objects of his wrath. But instead of taking vengeance on us, he has placed that vengeance on his son, Jesus Christ. We go free because someone else took on God's legal punishment for us. This 
than just the actual expression of being God, according to Moses chapter 1. Look at verses 2 and the first half of verse 2. Now the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means prove to be guilty. Talk about repetition, right? Nahum is making it plain. The Lord is an avenger. And I'm not talking about the Marvel heroes. Right? He's a real avenger, an avenger of his people. But before we zoom into this idea of avenger, notice the title Lord right, in all caps. You saw this same title used to refer to God in our Genesis series that Pastor Dave is preaching through. In this one chapter, right, 15 verses, 10 times, 10 different times, half of which are right here in verses 2 and 3, the Lord is referred to as Lord. This is, this is God's proper name. This was the name given to Moses on Mount Horeb in Exodus chapter 3. I am who I am. It is meant to convey a, an immediacy. His, his presence, Yahweh is present. Yahweh is accessible, near to those who call upon him. Nahum, through repetition, is making it plain that God, the avenger, is near. But to understand his vengeance, we must first understand his holiness. Leviticus 20, 26, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. God is holy in every way. God's holiness is what separates him from all other beings. And so, God's vengeance is not lightning. It's a perfect vengeance in every way. So when one image bearer abuses another image bearer, he he must respond. It It is who he is who responds. And so we learn even more about God and this response. Three things. He keeps his wrath for his enemies. He is slow to anger and great in power. He will by no means clear the guilty. These three ideas are essentially saying the same thing. God patiently reserves his wrath for his enemies until the perfect time. In other words, although God will take vengeance on his adversaries, right, he is, he's patient. He's long-suffering. You don't take this patience for weakness. He is great in power, and he will by no means clear the guilty. There is comfort in this. The Lord, being patient in his wrath, gives time for the wicked to repent. Friends, for us, like us, the wicked, he gave us time to repent. Praise God for his patience. Yet the Lord, not clearing the guilty, that creates in us an assurance that those who persist in wickedness will not go the Lord is an avenger. The guilty will not go unpunished, but Nahum continues to give even more vivid commentary in the following verses. Question two, what has he done? What has he done? Verses three B to six and eight. One thing to remember in all of scripture is that God's attributes give rise to his actions. God's attributes give rise to his actions. Seeing what he's done, it teaches us about who he The God of the Bible is a big God. He is a dreadful God towards his enemies. And so Nahum grabs the things we hear in nature to help us understand just how fearful God's wrath really is. As Nahum unpacks this nature imagery, 
But one thing that is not obvious to us in the text is the reason why Moses chooses these particular names. Uh, in addition to these barbar- this barbaric and, and chaotic uh, uh, nation of Nineveh, Nineveh was also a nation that worshipped false gods. And many of the images that Nahum invokes point to the true God's destruction of not just Nineveh, but their false gods as well. One author describes this portion of the chapter as an extended taunt to Nineveh and their false gods. So, for example, in verse the second half of verse 3, we see, His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds have a dust cloud. So we many of us heard in recent scripture, uh, the false god of Baal is, is often referenced. Well, Baal is described as the storm god who rides on the clouds. And right away, uh, Nahum starts off describing the Lord's path or way or where he walks as a whirlwind and a storm. And check this out. The very clouds that Baal rides on and needs for transportation are nothing more than dust beneath the feet of the one in verse 4, this vengeance God rebukes the sea so that it dries up. He dries up all the rivers. The very source of life for mankind. We need water. We need rivers. Right? We need trees and tributaries. God can dry them up instantly. And next, Bashan and Palm withered. The bloom of Lebanon withered. These three locations were often cited for their fertility and their fruitfulness. Uh, Bashan was a northern region famous for its rich pasture land. Palmer was a mountain next to the Mediterranean Sea, known for its beautiful countryside. And Lebanon, a mountainous region north of Israel, known for its vast forests. What man is in awe of and dependent on, God controls and acts. Verse 5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. All throughout scripture, hills and mountains are symbols of, of permanence and immovability. You know, if there was anything that the Ninevites could count on, it was that the mountains and the hills, they wouldn't move, right? Yet again, Nahum, in, his, in an attempt to relay just how powerful God is in his vengeance, says that the hills, uh, even the very ground that they stand on, tremble at the presence of God. And then, as if his descriptions are somehow still coming up short, Nahum bursts out these two rhetorical questions. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? God's indignation or God's anger is often described as a scripture as being like fire. When a fire burns out of control, it consumes everything in its path. There is nothing that is left untouched by it, and such is the case with God's anger. Those who stand in the path of God's wrath will be consumed like fire. The very next phrase speaks to this exact idea. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by it. So rocks, the strongest elements that we know, rocks can't stand up to God's wrath. And the lesson is clear. For those who oppose the Lord, neither can we. Jump to verse 8. For with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversary. You continue to see his enemies in darkness. What's interesting about this part of the prophecy of the destruction of Nineveh is that it's symbolic of Jesus. 
is a flame that began the demise of the Assyrian kingdom of Babylon. According to secular historical accounts, during the final siege of Nineveh by the Babylonians, unusually heavy rain caused the rivers that ran through their territory to flood and then to compromise the city walls, which eventually collapsed, allowing for the invading army to defeat them. The Lord will pursue his enemies as well. There is no escape or relief from God's vengeance for those who persist in wickedness. Which brings us to our third question. Who is it for? Who is it for? We see the answer in verses 9 through 11 and verse 14. It comes in a question form in verse 9. Those who plot against the Lord. Well, hold on, Jonathan. I thought Nineveh was oppressing Judah, not, not the Lord. Well, that's true. And here we see just how closely God identifies with his people. Yahweh is so present with his people that when we are oppressed, it is just like him being oppressed. Therefore, any plots of wickedness against his people are received as plots of wickedness against us. So here are three helpful categories to help answer this question, who is God's vengeance for? Three categories, specifically Nineveh, generally the wicked, and ultimately those of the Lord. Specifically Nineveh, generally the wicked, and ultimately those of God's sovereignty. Uh, Beginning with the idea that this vengeance is reserved specifically for Nineveh. We notice in verse 1, we saw that earlier, this whole book is an oracle concerning Nineveh. Verse 9, what do you plot against the Lord? 10, well, they are like the Anatholians. 11, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord. Verse 14, the Lord has given a commandment about you. The they and the you in these verses is referring specifically to Nineveh. Much like a bullseye, which began uh, broadly as descriptions of God as revenger, has shrunk slightly to nature imagery about the power of God, and now depicts a bullseye using pronouns specifically to refer to Nineveh, calling them out as a wicked nation. Uh, The latter half of verse 9, he will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise presently. Again, we saw this language used in verse 8. There will be no return, no resurgence, no comeback. This destruction of Nineveh will have no trace of mercy. The Assyrians will be wiped out to never affect the people of God again. Matter of fact, history even speaks to this. It wasn't until 1820, so that's 200 years ago, that the city of Nineveh was finally dug out from its location by in verse 10, Nahum describes them as entangled horns and drunkards. Uh, the idea behind these two images being that they both, in a sense, trap themselves. Uh, picture entangled thorns. It's hard to untangle one from another. And when it comes time to throw those thorns away or throw them out, when one goes, they all go. Uh, they are easily thrown out at once. Nineveh is like a tangled mess against the Lord. They, they trip over themselves. And the image of a drunkard, no inhibition, losing control of their faculties. Nineveh is like a drunkard. They are defenseless. They are utterly vulnerable to God and against his coming judgment. There is nothing that they can do. And lastly, stubble fully dried. Some versions translate stubble as straw. I think that helps us a little bit to understand exactly what he means. Fully dry straw. Uh, All it takes is a, a fart and a whole bale of straw is up in flames. This is the destruction 
verse 11, Nahum alludes to a worthless donkey. So as I, I studied this text, there was some speculation about who this worthless counselor might be. Some commentators said it was a particular king. Some said it was a seen king. Uh, either way, this worthless counselor's origin is known. The specific object of God's wrath. Uh, which brings us to our next category, generally the wicked. Generally the wicked. It goes without saying, Nineveh was a wicked nation. They were so wicked that verse 14 tells us that the Lord has gone as far as to give a command or an order about Nineveh. He says, no more shall remain in the desolation you have been deprived. I will cut off the tribes of Israel from among you. I will make you a glory for you are vile. No more will the name of Nineveh be perpetuated. They won't even have offspring to carry on their names. Even their false gods from idols of wood and metal will be cut off. The Lord himself will be Nineveh's understanding. I will make you a grave, he says, for you are vile. That word being much wickedness in the Hebrew. So then why is the Lord so diametrically opposed to the wicked? Well, Psalm 109 depicts the wicked as those who did not remember to say thank you. Those who pursued the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted and put them to death. God has been abundantly gracious with all of mankind. Uh, we call this common grace. But when his creation both refuses to acknowledge him and oppresses those made in his image, he has a particular wrath reserved for the wicked. This is a, this is a wickedness that God in his goodness will respond to. But lest we stand and think that the Lord's vengeance is reserved only for the wicked or specifically those who plot against him like the way Nineveh did. I, I want to broaden this scope uh, and, and, and be clear that God's vengeance is ultimately reserved for all who do not trust in him. All who are outside of him. It is reserved for all who refuse to turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus. I know this is a hard reality, especially when we begin to look around at close family and friends who have not trusted in Jesus. And while God has been nothing but merciful, he has been nothing but merciful and gracious. We see the highest expression of this love in the sending of his son Jesus. God does the world. He knows that sin will only lead to more destruction. And so he's done something about that. But when sinful men refuse to receive the greatest gift that he has ever given, his very own son, Jesus, they are choosing to live as rebels, as those who plot against him. And we see from Nahum, the Lord will make an end to those who rebel against him. The Lord's vengeance is reserved specifically for Nineveh, uh, generally for the wicked, and ultimately for those outside of him. Now, in a plethora of different ways, Nahum's prophecy has been clear. God's vengeance is complete for his people. But what about the lost sheep? Which brings us to point number two. God's vengeance is a comfort for his people. God's vengeance is a comfort for his people. We see this in verses 7, 12, and 13 of Nahum. In the midst 
midst of the message of destruction, there is comfort to be found. Uh, even the Hebrew name Nahum testifies to this reality. Nahum means comforter. Much like our study through Genesis, this too is a book that is meant to comfort God's people. As we did in our first point, let's ask those same three questions to help us see how this language indeed is a comfort for God's people. So beginning with, who is God? Uh, starting off the chapter, uh, and Nahum is clear the Lord is jealous. He's avenging. He is wrathful. And now we finally see something different coming up about the Lord in verse 7. Behold, how great he is. Uh, we use this language all the time uh, in church and among Christians. Maybe you've had, when somebody says God is good, what do people respond? What does it mean? What does it actually mean that God is good? Two things about God's goodness in verse 7. He's good because he's reliable. And he's good because he's good. He's good because he's reliable and he's good because he's good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. A stronghold is a place or, or means of safety. In ancient Israel, a stronghold would be a city with, with high and sturdy walls to protect them from enemies and invaders. The people inside, they would rely on these walls. And so, Nahum refers to God as a stronghold for Judah and for us. That God would be reliable, that we would trust in this stronghold. He also knows those who take refuge in him. He, he knows, he, he cares for those who trust in him. We all have people in our lives that we would consider to be reliable, right? Hopefully your doctor is reliable, right? Hopefully your lawyer is reliable, but just because they are reliable doesn't necessarily mean that they are good. Judah could take comfort in God's vengeance on his enemies even in the midst of suffering because he's good. He's not callous. He is not unconcerned. He is present and intimately acquainted with his people. This is why the Apostle Peter could say to Christians in exile, cast all of your anxiety on the Lord, for he cares for you. ABC family, we serve a good God. He is reliable, and he cares for us. So my encouragement to you is to take refuge in the Lord. Don't run to people. Don't run to alcohol or pornography or social media. Friends, run to Jesus. Turn to him in prayer. Read his word daily. Fellowship with his church. If you find yourself struggling to see his goodness, look no further than Christ. Christ went to the cross and died the death you deserve so that you don't have to. Friends, there is no greater pity. And we know he's reliable. Why? Because he's got us from there. Take refuge in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He is good. Next question. What has he done? According to Nahum, from his goodness, he has made enemies. In verses 12 to 13, we see the Lord promises deliverance. In verse 15, we see the Lord promises punishment. He promises deliverance and he promises punishment, starting with his promise of deliverance. Uh, promises in Scripture hold no weight if God is not sovereign. Promises in Scripture hold no weight if God is not sovereign. If God is not completely in control at all times of all things, then he would cease to be God. There would be no comfort to be found in suffering 
not control sex. In verses 12 and 13, we see uh, details that tip us off to God's sovereignty. And there he begins, the world be cut down. I have afflicted you. I, have, I will afflict you no more. I will break his yoke from off of him. Nahum is depicting through his poetic imagery a sovereign God. Uh, there were no maybes or, or mights in that first month of Exodus. What's being described is as good as done. Uh, this burdensome rule of Assyria over the nation of Israel is about to come to an end. Oppression will come to an end. Uh, Christian abuse will come to an end. Uh, hardship, suffering, pain, sorrow, racism, cancer, brokenness will come to an end. And how do we know this? Because our God is sovereign and he is silent in this matter. Can God deliver us from current trials and hardships? Yes. Uh, does he? Yes. No. delivers us in his good timing. And sometimes that timing is when we see him at work. But for Judah, more important than when these conflicts would come to pass was trusting the God behind the conflicts. Uh, in addition to this promise of deliverance, we also see a promise of peace. Uh, verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through. He is utterly satisfied. Notice the two commands in this verse that kind of culminate in a promise of peace. The command to look, the command to keep, and the promise of peace. So beginning with this command to look, behold, in other words, look to the mountains. Look to the feet of the person on the mountain who brings this good news. And it goes without saying, but uh, email wasn't available for ancient Israel, right? So if a message was going to get from one city to another city, then it better be important because somebody was going to have to carry that message by foot to that next place, right? And all of that might entail. So imagine, with all of the persecution and oppression Judah was facing under Assyrian rule, they longed for good news. And here it is, uh, in the form of an oracle from Nahum. But notice this message of good news, it didn't come from within, right? It came from outside. There was nothing good happening for Judah while remaining under Nineveh's thumb. If there was going to be good news, if there was going to be a rescuer, uh, he had to come from outside. Friends, the same goes for each and every one of us who are in Christ. Left to ourselves, there is no good news. As a matter of fact, it's only bad news. As Ephesians 2 tells us, we were dead in our sins. A message of good news, a gospel message, had to be delivered to us from outside of us. A message of peace. Judah had not seen peace in a really, really long time. The threat of being completely overrun like the northern kingdom of Israel was imminent. And here, Nahum, in the midst of all of their suffering, delivers hope. Now, this is a message of peace for Judah, uh, but it is also a message of hope for us. 
where we ask and answer our third question, who is this comfort for? And here is the answer. The gospel of Jesus Christ at its core is the message of sin. Beginning with Adam, we have all sinned. And our sin has led to a broken relationship with God. Our sin has made us enemies of God. The same wrath that Nahum prophesied would be poured out on Nineveh is the same wrath that will be poured out on all who oppose the living God. Left to ourselves, that is each and every one of us. There is no neutral anymore. Uh, The peace that we need more than any other peace is peace with God. And this is the whole purpose of Jesus. The God-man, Jesus Christ, came to earth, lived a life fully pleasing to the Father. In no ways did he rebel or break God's command, and his life culminated in being selfless to the end. And hung on a Roman cross to die. But this death, it was not a death for wrongdoing. This death was a death that would open a way for mankind to be reconciled to God. Uh, Jesus died on the cross. His body was placed in a tomb, and three days later, he, he physically, he bodily rose from the dead. And in so doing, he secured the peace that mankind needs. from it and turn to Christ in faith can be saved. This is the good news of how man can be reconciled, how man can have peace with God. For those here this morning who have not trusted in Christ for salvation, this morning, how many might be saved? And this is the good news of peace that you can have too if you would turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. I would love to talk to you more about that. Come find me after the service. Any one of our pastors would love to talk to you about that. They'll be at the doors. Uh, Maybe even the person who brought you here would love to tell you more about how you can have a reconciled relationship with your creator. Uh, Skip to the last line of this passage. For never again shall the worthless have truth. He is utterly dead. Uh, No sweeter words could do that You know, it's as if the imagery and the poetry is, is lifted for a moment. And Nahum speaks in plain terms. No more will the wicked in vain. You know, at first glance, you might think that this deliverance will happen the moment that Nineveh is defeated. But again, sadly, historically, we know that Nineveh did fall, but to Babylon, who then took Nineveh, took, then took Judah into exile. So then we're left to wonder, what, what deliverance? What, what peace is God finally promising? Well, it's the same peace that the Apostle Paul desires for one in prison and one in exile. Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they will perish. Judah's most present problem is Nineveh. And like us, their greatest problem is sin. Ultimately, this deliverance is one from bondage of sin and death. Our avenger God is rescuing a people for himself and from the greatest enemy, sin. To end our time, I want to turn your attention to the exhortation that we skipped over. Keep your peace with your God, Nahum says. Fulfill your vows. Feasts or festivals were days appointed and ordained by God to be kept 
there were opportunities to celebrate the Lord's faithfulness. And each one foreshadowed or, <coughs> excuse me, symbolized an aspect of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Do we know him? The Lord was exhorting Judah to continue in obedience. Uh, the feast and the vows they took part in before the threat of Assyria, with comparative peace on the horizon, they were to continue in obedience. But why? Because all these truths were pointed to something greater. They would remind the people of Judah of the many acts of God's deliverance. In a similar way, Jesus, before he died and rose again, left particular signs and symbols for his followers to observe. The Lord's Supper and Baptism, both reminders of what Christ has done and what he will do. And today we have the joy of celebrating for over 2,000 years, both suffering Christians and prospering Christians have observed these ordinances. And like the command to Judah, we will keep observing them until our final destination, until we see our Savior face to face. Brothers and sisters, take heart, because although we may not see it, God's vengeance for his enemies will be complete, and therefore a peace.